Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. And I really believe God's going to do something in us as a community. But we start from scripture. We don't want to start uh, from any other vantage point, but God's vantage point. And Genesis chapter 1, 1 chapter before chapter 2, if you want a quick praise, is the macro version of creation. It's the highlights reel. It's the super sport blitz version of creation. It's God showing in, in quick succession from a, from a hundred foot view, just everything that happens. God saying, there was darkness, but he, God created everything from nothing. He said, let there be light, and boom, light exploded to being. Let there be day and night. He separated two from the land and the seas. He called mountains into existence, and animals and plants and bacteria, from the macro to the micro, everything in between. God created the heavens and the earth. Chapter 1. Chapter 2 zooms in. It's almost like a Google map where you zoom, zoom, zoom in all the way in to the story of God and humanity. And it finds out that actually the, the difference between all of creation and humankind, God made them in different ways. Everything else, day one, two, five, he spoke and things became. But day six, he created man in his image. The Bible tells us that the Lord God bent down into the dust of the earth, into the, the dirt of the earth, and he fashioned and he formed man, Adam. The first prototype human out of the dust of the earth. And it was so powerful, this thing, that actually God has said that after everything in the creation, He created the, the heavens and the earth, He created the sun, the moon, the stars, and, and everything in between. He said, they are good. But then when He makes man, He says, it is very good. Very good. But then we find, uh, stumble on as we look at this, the first thing that God says is not good. In all of creation, the first thing they say is not good. It wasn't even the mosquito, which I would have said not good. But for some reason, the Lord put that there. But I want to tell you, it wasn't that. It wasn't a frustra- something frustrating or something that didn't line up. The thing that God said was not good was he is not good for man to be alone. And all the single people here say, Amen. 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 Please, Lord. It's an incredible thing. He says, not good for man to be alone. So God does, he comes in and he doesn't say to Adam, I'm going to give you a hobby. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you a new movie to watch. I'm not going to sign you up for Netflix because, you know, just I want to keep your boredom at bay. No, he says, I'm going to give you a suitable helper. Uh, somebody who is just right for you. Somebody who is perfect for you. And that word helper, will get into it in a few weeks' time. It is not demeaning. It is not now written in a way to say, come on, somebody to do Adam's laundry. It's not written in any smaller way. It's at a massive level saying, actually, the task that I have given Adam is too big for him to do it alone. He needs somebody who's going to help him on that journey, on that task. And actually, we find out that the why God did this was actually man was made in God's image. And God is in community himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he says, I want mankind to represent who I am. So he made man in his image. He says, not good for man to be alone because it doesn't fully represent me. Well, it's a powerful start. And he puts together man and woman. We'll get more into this as the series goes. But as a, as a quick praisey version, I want to tell you this amazing thing. As he puts Adam to sleep, pulls out a rib from his side, he creates woman. And man wakes up to see not the aardvark in front of him, not the rhino, not all the animals that he had just been spent days naming, but he sees woman, naked and glorious in front of him. Just reading the scriptures. What comes out of his mouth is he says this, he says, 
It's incredible. If you read it, it's written, it's poetic, it's poetry. What comes out of man's mouth the first moment he sees woman is poetry. This is incredible. And this is amazing. And the first words in the, in the version I read there, it says, at last. This is like this delightful exclamation. If you go read the actual literal understanding of that word, and I'll bear with me if you're under the age of 18, close your ears. No, I'm joking, it's fine. But that at last can be translated in the language. Tanaka, take your fingers out your ears, please. <laughs> Lean in. It's an almost orgasmic sigh of delight in the original d- language. At last! It's this delight that comes from the depth of his being. Because this incredible moment of seeing the one that God has made before him came from out of here and going, Ah, yes! That is the one God's designed for me. And as we read in Scripture, it says that they became one flesh. The, 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 the Aramaic word, the echad, means the two shall become one. And what it's talking about there is the two, when they become one flesh, it's not just now, it is talking about sex and talking about intimate relations, but it's actually at a deeper level. It's taking it to an absolute deep, deep place. It's saying they were fused together at the deepest level, at a subatomic, primal level. Emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally, they became one. Welcome to sex. Naked and unashamed. The Bible says they were naked and unashamed. There was no fear. There was no anxiety. There was no embarrassment. There was no awkwardness about it. This incredible thing that actually, from page one in the Bible, I want to tell you this. Sex and sexuality was created by God. Romance was created by God. No matter what Hollywood says, this is in page one of the Bible. Maybe you hear and you think, you know, this archaic book, I'll tell you, to page one of this text, it's going with an orgasmic, poetic language about man and wife coming together and becoming one flesh. I don't know if you read your Bible recently, but this stuff gets me excited. Why I tell us that is this is the greatest, hopefully this will be a big revelation for you, is this. Sex came before sin. Sex came before sin. Sin is only after this. Turn one more page, there you get sin. There you get naked and ashamed and hiding and blame and fear. But actually, God created sex before sin. He claims rights on inventing this thing. He's the Steve Jobs on sex. I made that. I designed it. And I made it perfectly. And I want to help us in this thing that actually the Bible starts with two naked people in the garden singing poetry, having soul-satisfying sex, with no shame, no fear, no insecurity, no morning after pill, no hangovers, no walk of shame the next day. This is what see, the Bible starts with. But we find from the garden, if you speed up all the way into modern day living, my life, the first glimpse of sex in the Bible is an explosive nature. And my, my first glimpse of sex and sexuality was in the back of a dusty all-boys school, all-boys classroom with four boys handing around a dodgy playboy. In Zimbabwe, and with shame and secretive thing, and and trying to turn our heads and looking awkwardly at one another and laughing and not really knowing what to do with this, it was secretive, it was shameful, it was lustful, and it was weird. When actually, from a garden to the back of a classroom, something's gone wrong there. Yeah. Now, maybe you hear from a different generation, and and, uh, and that's an all normal for you. But I want to say this: that actually, the, the the sociologists tell us now that at the average age of of age ten, the first Childs, by 10, children have, would have been exposed to hardcore pornographic images. Not your scope magazine with pages torn out and 
that you stumbled on underneath your dad's bed, but this is hardcore pornographic images. This is the first image that of sexuality that our world has been introduced to. Something that is it is shameful, something that's, that is broken, that's hidden, but is seen as normal and acceptable. And actually, sociologists tell us that actually that the first image and the first thing you start to put in, that actually porno, pornography and, and those sort of lenses, they are rewiring the pathways of our brains to say, this is normal. Yeah. This is what is normal. So from the age of 10, and then we know that there's the case of younger, of this is what the world is getting into. So maybe you say, why are you speaking about sex, Gabe? Why are we doing this? Is this really the place for it? I go, if not for the church, the world are shouting this clearly. And they're showing a pathway for people to go. So I want to tell you this amazing thing. The, the book of Romans tells us, though, be transformed by the renewing. Another way to put it, be transformed by the rewiring of your mind so that you will know the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So I'm praying that as I've been preparing, I've been feeling God has been doing a rewiring in my brain and renewing the pathways that have been distorted by the world's view of sex and is becoming an, an understanding of the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, even and especially for this thing called sex. Everyone all right? Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Really good to see you all. So this morning, please stick with me. It might feel a little bit lecturish at times, but stick with me. We need to do some groundwork. And you guys aren't afraid, afraid of hard work, eh? JP's not afraid of hard work. No way. He's not really looking that good. <laughs> There's three views of sex that are the pervasive in the world we live in today. So I want to give them number one. It'll be on the screen now. The first view of sex is that sex is gross. Now, this is one that's perpetuated from religious pulpits around the world. And you might have even found it in the church where there's Christians who fear about fear it and they actually say, let's never talk about it. Just don't. There's the elephant in the room. Don't talk about it. Sex is dirty, we're told. Sex is disgusting. Sex is bad. So save it for your husband. <laughs> Thank you for that wonderful gift. <laughs> it's something that we've spoken of in church. It comes with almost a guilt trip and a list of don'ts. If you've ever been in church and somebody spoke on sex, you've left probably your head down and going, okay, I need to stop doing that. Now, I want to say that actually that's only half the story. You have to understand something deeper here. And this is not a new problem. This has always been going on in the church. A man named Jerome, who was a church, early church father in the 4th century, he was a theologian and priest who translated most of the Bible into Latin. This is a, a man who, who did incredible um, theological and scholarship work for Christianity that we're still living in today. Today, He wrote the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible. This man fought a raging battle with lust for most of his life while he's translating the Bible. A raging battle with lust. So in response to that battle, he almost vilified woman and marriage. So in his teachings, he said that actually the best is to be single... As we take one verse of Paul, it says, rather, rather be single. And, and, he says, and he says, if you must, you can be married, but just don't, well, if you have, don't have too much sex with her. That's what it's his teaching. He, he actually, he says, he wrote that husbands shouldn't have too passionate sex with their wives. You can have sex, but don't do it too passionately. Augustine, the church father, said that Mary and Joseph was the ideal because absence was the best expression of love between a husband and a wife. Church fathers. The middle-aged preacher said this: "Truth, absence from sex. We must have. We must be absent from sex on Thursdays for Christ's arrest. Absent from sex on Fridays because it was Christ's death. Saturday for the Virgin Mary. Sunday for His resurrection. Monday for the faithful departed. 
And that's why people say, thank God it's Tuesday. <laughs> it gives new meaning to Wednesday being hump day. But anyway, just, to, just put it in there. According to his early church forefathers, if you ticked off when they said you should or shouldn't have sex as a married couple, it actually left only 44 days a year where you could have blessed marital sex. This is the history of the church. I'm not making this up. But this is what they say. If we go to the next slide very quickly, that actually the church often or religion will often say to us, this is its equation, moral standards, and they'll tell you, this is how you must do it. Stay away, stay away. And how do you do it? You've just got to grin and bear it, take many cold showers, willpower, and it'll lead to holiness. That's the equation we are told. But actually, if we look at the true equation, the next one, I'll tell you that moral standards plus willpower have only actually left us with failure. Because if I look around, it doesn't work. By the amount of sexual sin and pain that I see around in the church, it doesn't work. It leads to guilt and leads to shame. Because actually, I want to tell you that rules without revelation will always lead to rebellion. Yeah. If there's rules and you don't know why really, if we don't understand the why that's driving these things that are leading to freedom, it'll always lead to rebellion. You just look at little children. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Don't touch us. What will they do? Because they haven't understood why. Philip Yancey's got this quote. I'll read it. It'll be on the screen now. It says this. I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept that traditional Christian morality offers the fullest, most satisfying life. The Pope utters pronouncements. Denominations issue position papers. And many Christians ignore them and follow the lead of the rest of society. Surveys reveal little difference between church attenders and non-attenders in the rates of premarital intercourse and cohabitation. Surveys also show that millions of people have left the church in disgust over its hypocrisy about sex, especially when priests and ministers fail to practice what they preach. One view is sex is gross. The other view we see is that sex is God. Sex is God, a culture obsessed with it, a culture that worship at its altar. And there's four different views that I, that I believe that come through this, and, and it's, they're systemic of each other. Number one is the world believes that sex is everything. It's idolized. Sex is idolized in our world. It's in our movies, it's in our series, it's on our billboards, in our magazines, emblazoned in the sky over Cape Town each week behind an airplane. We, we, we are so amazed, we actually rate the sexiest people in the world, and we'll buy the magazine and say, who's number one this year? A, true, a world that's obsessed with it. That we advertise everything with sex, from burgers to ice creams to cars to holidays, and yes, I even found an advert that was advertising cat food with a sexy woman in on it. <laughs> cat food. <laughs> the number one Google search is a, any, is a derivative of sex, and it is over 200 times more searched than God on Google. The closest thing, you know, that sex is actually the closest thing that most of the world have towards a spiritual experience. And this, again, is not new. This was something that's happened for years, that actually in the ancient Greek world, that to worship at the temple, the Paul wrote, if you read in Corinthians, that actually the, the Corinthian church were mixing Christianity with the religions of the day, that actually for you to encounter the divine, you had to have sex with a, a temple prostitute. The, the goddess Aphrodite was the goddess of sex. So there's a whole bunch of temple prostitutes for people to engage with the divine. Paul said in, in, in Philippians, he says, you worship 
you worship your belly. Your God, your God is your stomach. And I want to think that actually over the centuries, things seem to have just gone a little bit more south. But we find that actually sex is not God. It falls way short of the Creator. But actually when we stop worshipping God, lesser powers will take its place. So we find out here, sex is everything. But the problem with that is sex doesn't fully satisfy on its own. So it leads to in our culture, sex is nothing. Because if you, sex is everything, but it's not a, it's not a perfect savior, so it's not ever going to redeem, it's never going to lead to fullness. So if sex is everything and it doesn't fully suffice, actually it all will lead to being sex is nothing. And that's why we find today, people say, talk about sex in terms like shag, screw, hump, nooky. You know? Doing the monkey. You know, people just use little phrases because it's actually not that big a deal. People say, there's nothing big about it. As Bloodhound Gang once sang, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Shout out to 2010 right there. But you see, again, this is not new. We just, it's just a fleshly thing we do, people say. Actually, Lenin went into Russia. Not John. Don't worry, not John. Not the, not the Beatles. But Lenin went into Russia. And we, because Russia was in a weird state, he tried to bring sex down a pig or two because people were using it in such a weird, venerated way. But he actually is recorded saying it's just a natural appetite. You get thirsty, you drink. You get aroused, you have sex. It's just natural. It's just flesh and, 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 and your body. It's not loaded with any special meaning. But the problem with this is actually just a couple of years ago, two scholars from Cape Town, two men, wrote a book trying to outline the evolution of our species. And the book was called The Natural History of Rape. Because they said that actually they're arguing that, that rape was just another way for the promotion of the human species. Because sex is nothing. Now, we see it. The movies trivialize it. You smile. They talk at a bar. They touch flirtingly. They kiss. They go home. They have sex. And then they stress about, let's have a conversation. What are we? <laughs> just a weird way. But it's just normal for us because sex is nothing. But if sex is nothing, it leads to the fact that sex becomes unrestrained. This is amazing. I found a futurist in 1783. 1783. This was quite a long time ago. A guy named John Mills. He said this. The current, at the current rate of civilization, in the coming decades, when human beings will, human human beings will greatly restrain their sexual appetite and will be governed by conscience and reason. So he was saying a futurist in the 1700s said, looking ahead, with civilization getting more civilized, in the future, our sexual appetites will be, will be governed by our conscience and reason. If I look at it now, he couldn't have been so much more wrong. As the years have gone on, it seems that perversity seems to have been released to ends we could never have dreamt of. Unrestrained, people will say things like, I've got a right to satisfy my needs. And people even say, as long as no one's getting hurt, then it's okay. But I want to say this, that sex is like a river, it needs banks. Because as, as the Proverbs say, when we don't get revelation from God, we cast off all restraint. You see, I've seen that the greatest pain is when riverbanks have been burst. And I've seen rivers that bring life and energy and, and vitality to a community. When they flood and burst their banks, destruction and devastation comes. And actually, we see in, in Scripture a man named David, who is a man after God's own heart. He gives, un, he gives, gives unrestrained uh, access to sexuality. 
uncontrolled sexuality. He has an affair, and it leads to even greater and greater sins, in the sense that because of David's sin there, it moves into the next generation. That his sons just cannot put a stop to this rampage that David released in that moment. It leads to affairs, one-night stands, porn addictions, and it leads to pain way be, felt way beyond the two parties. So if you just want to look at this, the HIV virus, this is not trying to be too dramatic, but the HIV virus would not be spread if there was no promiscuity. You can run any campaign you want, but actually the answer is bring order. But when sex is unrestrained, it ends up finally being sex is depersonalized. And women, that's when women become sex objects. When separated the sex, sex act from when you separate the sex act from meaningful, deep, intimate relationships, you start to start see a society where adult shops are normal, where magazines advertise sex techniques because it's all about just the sexual act and not the intimate relationship. And it's casual sex, and that's normal. But we find that sex is meant to bond two people together in the deepest possible way. It's more than just body on body. It's, it's, it's spirit on spirit. It's heart on heart. And it's that well-worn illustration. If you've grown up in any youth ministry, you would have seen this a hundred times. But when the youth guy gets up and explains, and it's so visual and helpful, that actually when one piece of paper gets stuck to another piece of paper, that's how they're supposed to be. United. Engaged forever. Not engaged forever. Sorry if you engage. Connected together. That's the right terminology. Yeah. To, and, but then when that thing is pulled apart... It's not just, hey, let's try again, let's see what's going on. When you're pulled apart from that, that echa, the subatomic joining of two souls together through this, this sexual act, but much more at a deeper level, when you pull it apart, it leaves pieces of paper on the other one. Yeah. And you think, you know, that's okay, but as the more and more you go, that paper suddenly loses stickiness. It's not sticking very easily to the other papers. Maybe it's a, a, a junior school illustration, but for me it's so helpful to understand that actually we were not designed to be ripped apart and put engaged with another part. Because actually, as I've, on a purely pastoral level, I've started to understand that this thing called sex is a deep spiritual connecting thing. I want to tell you, your sexuality is more connected to your spirituality than you know. I don't know this because when I'm doing marriage counseling and preparing couples and they tell me, hey, you know, this is great, but yeah, I've got this one, I slept with this person or that person. The, the thing is, God can heal, God restores, but actually you've got to do a lot of work because that person often, there's something called soul ties that come into play that you carry into your next relationship. Yeah. Sitting with somebody who says, uh, every time I start engaging with marital sex with my wife, my brain goes with to that the person who's living way away from me. Yeah. Why has that happened? Because actually, there's something that's been violated there. Yeah. It's deeper. So I'll tell you, this is what we're told. And when sex is God, we're told the equation is desire plus consent equals freedom. But I ask, how, how free are we and how fulfilled are we as a society? Because actually, I'm honest, the, the equation should be this. Desire plus consent has led to disillusionment. A quote will be on the screen now. Bill Johnson says it this way, I thought it was profound. He says, when you get rid of the creator, you get rid of design. When you get rid of design, you get rid of purpose. When you get rid of purpose, you get rid of accountability. When you get rid of accountability, you get rid of the need to answer for your choices. When you get rid of having to give an account for your life, you remove the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So when you get rid of the fear of God and, and no wisdom, all you're left with is total confusion. So we see the world sees it, sex is gross, sex is God, 
I want to tell you that there's another way we can view it, and I pray that we pick it up in our hearts, is that sex is gift. Sex is gift. And it's a gift from the giver. This is a gift from God, a page two of the Bible, the start of humanity. God gives this powerful gift. It's the beauty and the power of sexuality. And I want to tell you that sexuality and that's the gift of sex is given for our joy and for His glory. And it's without shame. So there's three things. As I said, our view of Him determines our view of sex. And ultimately, our view of sex will determine our view of God. So I want to tell you three things about God, if that's all right, very quickly as we land on this, this morning about the gift. So the number one, God is a God of pleasure. Maybe you've never heard those words put together. God is a God of pleasure. Let me demystify the big man upstairs who's got his arm folded. He is not a cosmic killjoy. I remember sitting with my cousin who used to say to me, how come everything that's fun is outlawed in the Bible? And, I, and, and there was this incredible understanding that actually, but page one of the Bible starts with this. It says this, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. In the Gay Phillips translation, that is God on page one saying, have lots of sex. <laughs> be fruitful and multiply. He's not a prude. God invented this and he said they were naked and unashamed and they were having sex under the smile of God. God didn't say, I'll leave you to it. <laughs> giggling awkwardly, wonder what they're up to. He didn't walk back in and go, what the heck? What are you guys doing? No ways, guys. How did you figure that out? No. He's the inventor of pleasure. So much so, he says, in my presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And actually, this thing of sex is deeper, as I said, than just a physical experience. I'm not just talking on surface level, a quick... 30 seconds of delight or whatever's going on, I want to tell you that this thing is God saying that actually it's the, the echo of the deepest nature of who we are is that humanity wants to be fully known and fully accepted for who we are. And actually, humanity, if I'm honest, we're naked and we're ashamed and we're fearful of rejection. You'll masquerade it with boldness, confidence, you'll hide it, but actually at the very essence of who we are, because of sin, because we've allowed sex to either become gross and something we try and hide away from, morally overcome, or we've allowed to be God, we've ended up become realizing that we are naked and we cannot serve that master, we cannot suffice that master, so actually for us we're naked and ashamed. But actually sex for us under God's design is a physical reminder of his great joy. Freud diagnosed the great pain within as a longing for union with the parent. Jung diagnosed a longing for union with the opposite sex. But the Christian sees a deeper longing for the union with the God who created us. Let me tell you, God's a God of pleasure. Secondly, God's a God of purpose. As I said, it's for his glory. Because as I read the scripture, it says this. This is how the, the first scripture says, Adam knew Eve. Talking about sexual intimacy, two becoming one. Adam knew Eve. The, the, the Hebrew word there is Adam yadad Eve. Knew them at a physical, emotional, spiritual, uh, mental level. Adam knew Eve. What's powerful about that is it's the same word that's used in relation to us knowing God through our scripture. That because of Jesus, we get to yada God. Know Him. Same word. It was the weirdest thing when I remember when Fee and I got married and... Uh, and I remember we, we started to say, with our sex life, we said, well, we should probably be praying for our sex life. And let's pray, and let's invite Jesus into the bedroom with us. And we both looked at each other like, eh, that sounds weird. <laughs> like, it was just a weird concept for us to battle with, that actually Jesus wanted to be present in our sex lives. 
just people weird for us. If I'm being honest, we're like, this just sounds weird to even say. But but here's the amazing thing that actually this thing is sexuality points to God, but it's not God. But when we want to do it on our own terms, our own ways, we're saying that sexuality is God. That's where the world falls off. It's wagon. G.K. Chesterton, a great scholar, said this: When a man knocks on the door of a brothel, and I add, when a man goes onto a porn site, he is actually looking for God, because there's a deep cry inside of us to be known, to be fully accepted, to be naked and unashamed, but sin distorts it. So the God, the God is a God of purpose, because and it point, sex points us to God. But it doesn't only just point us to God, it reflects God. Ephesians 5 tells us that, if you go read verse 21 to 33, it tells us that the great scripture read in Mary at, at wedding days, that, that wives must submit to their husbands. And it says that husbands must lay their lives down for their wives. And often people get struggle with that text because they get all worked up about it. But actually the great indicator that says, as Christ has done for his church. Marriage is actually something that is supposed to reflect the actual uh, the sexual act in marriage is supposed to reflect Christ's love for the church. The world where sex is outside of marriage, sex becomes about my rights, what I need, my desires, my fulfillment. But sex in marriage is about let me serve you, let me lay my life down for you. It's supposed to reflect God, not demanding, but serving one another. But also it's the mission of God. Let me tell you the mission of God. I love this. The page one of the Bible tells us God's mission: be fruitful, multiply. Is God basically saying, have lots of sex and make babies? <laughs> Just being honest. That's page one. Be fruitful and multiply. So, the practical application of the sermon is, go enjoy the rest of the day, right? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but God is a God of purpose. He's put a purpose to things. Not just this, oh, thing, whatever. Do what you want with sex. Come up with something. There's a purpose for it. It's to reflect His glory for us to know God, for us to reflect Him to the world, and as uh, people who serve and deny ourselves and, and actually fulfill our spouse and actually give ourselves away like Christ did for us. And it's also for the mission of God. But finally, it's also, this is that God's not only a God of pleasure, He's a God of purpose, but He's also a God of parameters. You see, this is an incredible thing. Good passion, but with the wrong par- parameters will lead to pain. Good passion, but with wrong parameters lead to pain. It's like building a fire in your house. Building a fire is not wrong, but without anything to contain it will lead to chaos. You see, the same thing that brings warmth to your home leads to the forest burning down. Same power. Powerful, beautiful, amazing thing. It's, a, it's like when you're in a cold room and somebody stacks wood in the fireplace. Putting a fire in the fireplace is awesome. But if someone came and put a fire in the middle of your couch, same power, wrong place, destruction. You see, the only relationship that can contain this power of passion and pleasure and purpose is one of covenant. God has given the world this incredible gift of sex and sexuality, and He says, I want it to be contained in covenant. What I mean by covenant is this thing of marriage, not a piece of paper from a priest, not a piece of paper from the state, and not somebody saying a blessing of you, but a covenant is to become one flesh in marriage. Not, the Bible doesn't tell us to put out this passion, it says, find the right place for the passion, or you'll get burnt. 
You, you see the Latin for inf- infatuation, the word, the word infatuation, which is just actually meaning, hey, I feel a little bit stirred, I feel a little bit amped for this, let me just give vent to my needs. Infatuation actually means false fire. It looks like fire, but it's not the real deal, and it won't lead to intimacy. You see, the thing given to develop intimacy in your life ends up destroying your capacity for intimacy when passions are misplaced. You see, the very thing that God has given us, sex, to be used in the right place, to lead us to fulfillment of intimacy, when it's not used correctly, will actually destroy that very thing we're longing for. It will lead to pain, exposed, rejection, brokenness, wishing I could go back, but actually we've opened it up in the wrong place. You see, I want to say, and I've been guilty of this as well, that too often we've been building the wrong fires. Sending the wrong texts to the wrong people. Looking at the wrong sites. Engaging with the wrong conversations. I want to tell you today, God's a God of pleasure. He's a God of purpose. He's a God of parameters. We're going to open this up in more detail. I just want to set the scene for us this morning. But I want to land this way. Maybe you've messed up here today. And I'm not just, this is not me trying to come down heavy. This is me trying to come down clear. Maybe you are single today and you're fighting to keep passions in the right place, but it's hard. Been there, done that. Messed up many times. Maybe you're married, but you're feeling the pull to other illicit lovers. I want to take us to a passage of scriptures we learn. John chapter 8, there's a story, it won't be on the screen, but it's a story of a, the man named Jesus Christ who's in the middle of a crowd and the religious elite who've been pronouncing sex is gross. Drag a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. And I love the fact that these religious elites, they've caught a woman in the act of adultery. How do you do that? You have to be a peeping Tom to do that. No? I've caught her! That means actually sex wasn't just gross for them, sex was God for them. The Pharisees and the religious elite dragged this woman out. She'd be caught out of this, 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 this act of sin, and they drag her before Jesus, and they want to trap Jesus, and they throw her in the dirt, and say, Jesus, the woman sprawled out in the dust and the brokenness, and she's shameful, and she's trying to cover up her nakedness, and these religious guys say, Jesus, she was caught in adultery. The Lord says she must be stoned. What do you say? And I love the scripture because Jesus doesn't freak out. Jesus doesn't throw a tantrum. Jesus doesn't get on the, uh, starts preaching a sermon to him all. Jesus doesn't do anything. Jesus does something quite remarkable. The author John tells us that Jesus bent down low and started to write in the dust. Doesn't tell us what he wrote in the dust. And scholars just argue and say, maybe, maybe he did this, maybe he does that. But I love the fact that the Bible doesn't tell us what he did in the dust. But if you read the book of John, the book of John is actually written as a New Testament mirror of the book of Genesis. That's why in John chapter 1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It's mirroring what happens in Genesis chapter 1. So when John uses the, the imagery for us that Jesus, the Word became flesh, the representative of God, is in the dust and the brokenness of humanity gone wrong. He's echoing what happened millennia before when God the Father went into the dust of humanity and made what could go right. It's an amazing thing. Once the, he says, he who caused the first sin cast the first stone. It says one by one, the guys, the religious leaders who held to sex is gross or sex is God, they start to realize that Jesus has ripped that question out of their hands and has exposed their, their sin and their, um, their, their, their shame and, and they start to drop their hypocrisy. They start to drop their stones one by one and they, says, they start to leave slowly. And after a while, Jesus, after still riding in the dust, looks up and it's just him and the woman. 
And he says to her, where are your accusers? Are there none left? She says, no, they're, they're all gone. And Jesus says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, I love this about Jesus. Religion will try and shame us and try to cover our brokenness. We'll try to tell you to morally go and work hard at your brokenness. And now leave you with three steps on how to actually get free today. Go and apply these tomorrow. But I want to tell you, shame is often the source of our brokenness. So it can't be the solution. Shame and regret and brokenness, it's, it's part of the problem. That's, how can it be the solution? But Jesus comes and says, actually, neither do I condemn you. No condemnation in Christ. But he says, go, give you a future. And a future where you're not going to be tripping over the same sins. I'm going to give you a future that's filled of freedom. Yeah. I want to tell you the biggest solution I want to land with this morning as we open the series, which is going to get practical and real to move from here, I want to ask you this morning as a people, can we be a people? Maybe you've messed up, maybe you're feeling you're fighting the battle, maybe there's deep, deep secret shame, you wish you could rewind, you wish you could try harder, maybe you're going, actually, I'm filled with temptation all the time, I don't know what to do with this. Maybe you're in a marriage and you're feeling, actually, sex has disappeared, we haven't had that for, what is that? And you're just desperate, how do we get, wrestle with this thing of our sexuality? I want to say this, drink from Christ. That's my practical Come to Jesus Christ because actually your heart is restless till you find rest in Christ. He is more than enough. The Bible tells us that He sets us free, but it also tells us that He is our freedom. He's the giver of joy, but He is also our joy. He tells us He is the one who gives us satisfaction, but he, I'll tell you, He is the satisfaction of our souls. That Jesus alone will satisfy you, and He is more than enough. Jeremiah 2 verse 13 says this, as the prophet is speaking for God on, on behalf of God, he says, My people have stopped drinking from me the spring of living water, and they're now drinking from the toilet. Paraphrase version. I want to tell you the only thing that can break this destructive obsession, whether it's you thinking sex is gross and I don't want to talk about it, I don't know how to do it, I keep it in the dark, I don't need to share, that's my private story, or if sex is God and you're like, actually, I don't care, I can do what I want and, and you're beating that drum. I want to tell you today that for you to pick up the gift of Christ, the only thing that can break this destructive obsession is to drink from Him. So this morning, I, I, I don't know about you, but as I prepped, I felt the joy of God rise up in me. But I also felt a future start to rise up. Say, there's a, maybe there's a better way, a better way to bring my mind into thinking. And actually today, as we're starting to renew our minds, that actually God is not against our joy and our pleasure. He is for us. He is for us. So I want to land with this. What we need to do is we need to repent. The Bible means repent. The word repent means change your minds. But not just change your minds, change your way. Maybe you've grown up, you say, I'm a product of my environment. Well, actually, today, I'm resting that out of your hands. You cannot no longer say, I don't know. There's God's a God of pleasure, He's a God of purpose, but He's a God of pattern, parameters. We need to repent, but we need to receive Christ's grace. If you cross some lines, Christ is ready to forgive you. The Bible says in 1 John 1 9, confess because he is faithful and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's the guarantee I can give you. So why don't we close our eyes in this moment?